As we continue through the book of Ephesians, let me remind you, before we jump into our text tonight, of what we talked about last week. Many of you were not here, and so this is a a whole letter divided, yes, by verses and, and chapters. However, the original letter did not have verse divisions or chapters. They were put in later, much later, for us to reference and to be able to easily study. And so we are now in verses Uh, four to six. However, I want to read to you and just briefly remind you and set in context verses four through six. So let's read together Ephesians four, one to six. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here's our verses for tonight. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, remember from last week, very quickly, very quickly review. Paul, the apostle, is in prison and he sees his imprisonment not as um, something that he shouldn't be experiencing. Rather, he sees it from Jesus himself. He sees himself as a prisoner for the Lord, or you could translate that for in the Lord. And he is there because God has told Ananias, uh, the one who prayed for Paul and the scales fell from his eyes in Acts chapter 9 and 10. You could read that story. He said, he will stand before the rulers and authorities and governors and the emperor himself. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what Ananias was told by God about Paul. And this is the means by which Paul will speak to those in authority, the Roman rulers. He is in Roman house arrest. You can read about this in Acts chapter 28. And so he is spending two years in house arrest and he's writing letters. He has written Philippians. He has written Ephesians, he has written Colossians, and he has written the letter of Philemon. And he is speaking the gospel to all who come to him to hear him. And he is seeing his imprisonment for the Lord as a gospel opportunity. And he knows God has him right there. Okay, he urges us in light of what we learned in chapters 1 to 3, which is clear gospel revelation, that we should live in a manner worthy of our calling. We should live differently. We, should, we have five gospel keys here that we learned about last week, the five gospel keys to unity. You can see unity there in verse 3, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Bond is something that you uh, tie with. If, if the police bind you, then you are tied up. If the Holy Spirit uses peace to bind you, he is unifying us with peace, with a binding of peace. And these are the keys to unity. Humility, verse 2. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And we are eager to maintain Uh, the unity of the Spirit. We're bearing with one another in love, and we're eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, continuing in this unity of verse 3, he talks about seven ones. This is how unified you are as Christians. There are seven uniting factors here, okay? Seven. And they are one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that's, that's where we're going to go tonight. One of our four core commitments as a church is to, you can see there, number three, unify peoples. Okay? We, we are seeking to do four things repeatedly and not veer off this path ever. We are seeking to make disciple-making disciples, train and challenge men to lead sacrificially. We are seeking to unify peoples, and we want to plant church-planting churches. Now, we will be talking about all of these core commitments of ours within the, the, la- the latter chapters of Ephesians, but tonight, we're going to specifically talk about number three, unifying peoples. This is important to us. 
What does the word unity mean? Unity, it's from dictionary.com, three definitions that are helpful. It's the state of being one, oneness. A whole or totality as combining all its parts into one. The state or fact of being united or combined into one as parts, I'm sorry, as of the parts of a whole. Unification, okay? That is unity. And so here, from verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Paul goes now to explain that there are seven here, what we could call essential unifying truths. Okay, now listen, these are seven what we call essential Christian doctrines. Doctrine just means teaching. Okay, if you remove any one of these, you no longer have Christianity. You have something else. Now, there are more essential Christian doctrines than these seven, but these are seven, and they're very important. And my goal for this evening is to thoroughly flush out these seven with other texts. Why do we go to other texts in the Bible? Because we believe that the Bible, those 66 different books written by many authors over thousands and thousands of years, has one overarching author, the Holy Spirit. And so you can jump from Genesis to Amos to Micah to John to Revelation and, and see the same themes, consistency, consistency. And so we're going to jump all over the place learning about these ones, these essentials. And I was at just at a wood shop, a uh, carpentry shop, which I visit frequently for my job. And this job in particular, this, this, this wood shop, the people are so disunified, you can feel it when you walk in. Have you, any of your workplaces, very contentious. It's like thick, you can feel it. It's just one person, two, three, okay, a couple. So you know what that feels like. And for those of you who have a harmonious, unified work environment, you are living in the exception, not the rule. You realize that. Because most places, it's backbiting, it's disunified, and the only reason people get along is because they don't want to get fired, okay? But let, let Tammy walk away from the group of five, and all of a sudden, Tammy's getting stabbed in the back by three of them. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's not unity. Yeah, that's disunity. In fact, that's satanic. I'm not saying Satan is in those workers, you know, doing that. It's just that's the way it is in Satan's kingdom, but it should not be in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Rather, we should be unified because we are unified. Now, I was at this wood shop, and, and man, there was just not only terrible language, but, but the, the manager said to me, man, have you ever worked in an environment where everybody hates everybody else? And I was like, no, not really. He, and I was like, it's not good. It's not helpful for getting stuff done. He's like, no, it's not. I was like, it's not good. He said, no, it's not. And the one person won't even talk to the other person when they want to use the saw. They go to a manager to have them go talk to the person on the saw to get them off. It's just I'm not on speaking terms. Like, that's not helpful for a work environment. Okay? Now, that kind of garbage creeps into the church. You guys know that. I'm not talking to so-and-so. I know what they said. I saw what they posted. I know what they think about this political issue. And, and on and on it goes. And we can be so disunified so quickly Rather, we need to realize, friends, that we are more unified than we are disunified because we have at least these seven. Now, let's, let's talk about this. We have as a oneness unifying factor, number one, it is we are part of one body, one body. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the best places to see this. I'm not going to expound this. I'm just going to read it. Okay? This is Paul, same author, writing to a church in Corinth that is massively disunified, backbiting and stabbing one another and trying to self-glorify. For just as the body is one and has many members, now he's talking about the, the human body. Okay? Your human body is one body, yet it has all kinds of different parts. It has nose, eyes, it has feet, it has glands, it has a, a circulatory system, a heart, a brain, you get it. And all these parts have to be working as one for anything to get done. Imagine if your hand rejected the brain signal to pick up the coffee cup. It just, it wouldn't work, okay? The hand's like, I'm not doing it. I'm just tired of you telling me what to do, brain. 
Who do you think you are? You know, it just wouldn't work. But thankfully, most of our bodies cooperate, cooperate. They cooperate together for accomplishing good for the whole of the body. Right? So hopefully you went out uh, and enjoyed the snow within the last couple weeks. Anyone snow people? I'm the only snow person. All right, a couple snow people, good. And, 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 and hopefully you put like 10 layers of socks on and bags on your feet. And what happens when you're out there for a couple hours and the toes start to get super duper cold? You're like, it is time to go in because I want to keep my toes. Right? So the toes are telling the rest of the body, we got to get in soon, we got to get in soon. And you're having so much fun, you're like, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the mouse having so much fun screaming as you're, as you're going down the hill in the tube. It's not going to work that way. You got to protect the whole of the body. You get it. Okay? Dumb illustration, but you get it. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So this is the picture. We are one body, and Jesus Christ is our, is our head. He is the chief shepherd. It's a different metaphor in Peter. But he is the, the chief shepherd and we are the sheep. This image is Jesus is the head and we are the body of Christ. Now, we got to say something about the capital C church. There is a church beyond Eternal City Church. You know this. All those who stay true to the gospel, as Jude would say, are, are in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They are the church, the capital C church, and they exist in the past, the present, and the future, all believers of all time. We are a small C church. We are a local expression of that capital C church. And we, though individual people in the small C church, are connected as one local church, one body. And we are connected to the larger body of Christ. 4, verse 13, in one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, capital S, we were all baptized into one body. Baptized means immersed, plunged into, dipped under, one body. Jews or Greeks, Jewish people or non-Jewish people, slaves or free, bound people or free people, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We all have this same spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 16, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chooses. Okay, now for us, we might not want to be the body part we are. But this is what God has for you. And you should be doing your body part as best you can. And not wishing you were another body part. Now this is tempting for us in, a, in an age where we can see everything on the internet. And we can see what everybody's doing all over the world. God, why didn't you send me to Hawaii as a missionary? I mean, I was called to that, God. You missed me. <laughs> like, right? Some of you feel that way. No, God has called you to something other than that or you would probably be there. Okay? What has God called you to? What body part are you? And how are you specifically gifted and shaped to serve him and to serve the body? And we have a, an assessment to help you with that. It's called the shape assessment. It's free and it's for everyone. Let's keep going. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts. You could translate that members. Yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts, members, of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. You guys know what that means, right? We put on clothing because we believe the body should be covered up. Right? Okay, good. It's one thing to be at the beach and dress a certain way, but it's a whole other thing to walk in here dressed for the beach. Right? Context matters a lot. And this is saying we treat the unpresentable parts with greater modesty on purpose. Now, he's talking about parts of the body of Christ, too. You realize that? 
He's not just explaining the physical body. He's talking about the parts of the body of Christ. There are invisible things happening that you have no idea about, that I have no idea about. No one's seeing it. They don't have a YouTube channel. They don't have a radio station. They're not writing books. They're not famous. Yet, they are essential. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. That's the point. No division in the body. We want unity. God wants unity. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and you individually are a member of that body. Now, you know uh, when you get your hand caught in the door of the car, anyone ever happened to them? Get your hand caught in the door, or maybe at your house you got your hand caught in the door. Right? The rest of your body feels that immediately, and the whole body goes into action to care for that hand. Okay? And the idea here is if there's hurting people in our body, there should be some action happening. Now, he, here's one thing we do need to say though. Okay? It's very easy for you to be hurting and isolate yourself and let no one know you're hurting and then feel sorry for yourself and then hate on the church because no one's coming to help, yet no one even knows you need help. You, you gotta let us know what's going on if we're gonna help you. Okay, so don't blame the church if we have no idea what's going on and we're not coming to help. Shake your head, okay, thank you. We need to know, tell somebody. Don't just think we can look at you and figure out what's going on, we can't. And I'm not on Facebook, so don't think, Chris, you should read my Facebook page. I don't have Instagram, not on Twitter. Tell us, communicate, tell us. Okay, I love you guys. So back to number two, we have one spirit. So just to clarify and put the one body to rest, we are the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. We are individually members of one body. We are unified. That is a unity factor that we are the same body, though different parts. And we need different parts, right? We don't all need to be an eye or an ear or a nose. All right, let's do number two, one spirit, one spirit. Now, this is the Holy Spirit. You can see the capital S here, and there is only one Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Luke, the physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote Acts, and he talks about uh, an episode in the early church in Acts 5 where uh, people were in need. And so what was happening is people were selling extra property they had. They were giving up their old electronics that they didn't need so that they could be sold. Right? It's like, I got the new iPhone. I don't, need, I don't need this old one. I'll sell it, and then the proceeds could be used to benefit those who don't have as much. That's what's happening here. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, two people in the early church, sold a piece of property, and it looks like they wanted to be greatly honored, but they did something shady by saying that they sold the property for less than they did, and they kept some back. That's the deal. So they were like, we gave all this money of this property. Meanwhile, they lied. They did not. They kept some back. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, they're both in on this, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Peter is the leader of the apostles, the leader of the first church in Jerusalem at the time. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, now notice that. He lied to who? the Holy Spirit, and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Like, you could have did whatever you wanted with it. It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? After you sold it, you could have kept back as much as you wanted. Like, why are you, why are you lying? Why is it, look at this, that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? God. Now, in verse 3 here, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. Who is the Holy Spirit? 
the Holy Spirit is God. I think this points to the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God, yet different persons. Okay? John 3, 5 to 8, here's the Holy Spirit. Jesus answered. Now, this, this answering is answering a man named Nicodemus. He was the uh, teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel. Okay? He was one of the greatest men alive who was uh, a leader of the Jews, and he was very knowledgeable in the Scriptures. And he comes to Jesus at night, and he has some questions. He sees the miracles. He sees Jesus' uh, amazing wisdom, and he, and he has some questions. And Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the, what? The Spirit. See the S? You have to be born of the water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, that means a natural physical birth, is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is what? Small s, Spirit. You need a physical birth and you need a birth that is Holy Spirit enabled, that results in a small s new spirit in you. You need a new spiritual birth. If anyone's in Christ, he, she is a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. Okay? Ezekiel 36, I will take out your heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit in you, small s. And I will put my spirit in you, capital S. This is the promise that Jesus is alluding to. And the water here and the Spirit is alluding back to Ezekiel 36. And you got to remember the context. This is the teacher of Israel he's talking to. Nicodemus being the teacher, not a teacher, should have known Ezekiel 36. And he should have known about being born of the water and the Spirit. And Jesus is trying to show him, you're not as hot as you think you are. He's humbling him. Okay, you may be the teacher, but you're ignorant. You think you got it all nailed down, but you don't. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you. Now, what does marveling mean? No Avengers, no Thor, no Hulk. What does marveling mean? It means he's blown away by this. Nicodemus is like, what? Like, Jesus is reading his mind. His mind is blown. And he's like, don't marvel at this. Don't marvel at this. Verse 8, I'm sorry. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you know that the word wind and spirit and Holy Spirit are all the same word in Greek. It's pneuma. It's pneuma. And so the context has to help guide what the the translation actually means. So, the wind blows where it wishes. You could say the spirit blows where it wishes. It, it moves where it wants. Look, you hear it sound. You hear it sound. You hear the wind sound. You can hear the Holy Spirit move, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. The Holy Spirit is on his own mission. He is doing what he wants, and you can't see him. He's invisible. But you know what you can see? You can see his effects. You can see his power changing people. You can see when someone goes from spiritual death to spiritual life because they begin to change radically. You can see the Holy Spirit's moving on people because the things they once loved become the things they now hate. And the things they once hated, godliness, righteousness, Christians, the Bible, are now the things they love. What has happened? The Holy Spirit has blown. That's what has happened. They're alive spiritually. And so you can only hear it sound, and you don't know where the Holy Spirit's moving or where he's going next. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's work to make alive, to cause people to be born again. Now, this Holy Spirit is God. He is essential to you, friends, becoming a Christian. Without the Holy Spirit moving on you, you don't become a Christian. Because you've signed a little card that says, I want to become a Christian, because you raised your hand at a church service, because you maybe walked down an aisle at at an altar call, that does not mean you're a Christian. I hope you know that. You must receive the gift from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, in your place as a substitute. 
Signing a card does nothing. Walking an aisle does nothing. Praying a sinner's prayer does nothing. You must personally receive Jesus Christ as a substitute in your place. You confess your sin. Ask for mercy. Ask that God would forgive you. And the offers on the table of full and free forgiveness of all your sins and eternal life with him. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. And your responsibility is to receive the gift that's on the table. Now listen, I, I, I grew up in a tradition where there was altar calls every week. And as a kid, I prayed the sinner's prayer probably three times a week. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Please save me. Right? And, and I prayed that prayer over and over. And when I hit teenage years, I was clearly not born again after all those prayers. Because I went after sin and darkness with passion and fire. And I loved every minute of it. I did not love Jesus, I did not love the Bible, and I certainly did not like Christians. I thought they were lame, I thought they were losers, and I wanted nothing to do with them. I'd go to youth group and laugh at them, okay? I was not born again, though I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer does not save you, friends. I hope you know that. Jesus saves you. You know this. So you must come to Jesus, throw yourself upon his mercy, throw yourself upon his substitutionary life and death, and receive the gift of forgiveness. Your belief does not save you. Jesus saves you. I hope you understand this. Now you do have to believe. But it doesn't save you. God doesn't reward your belief with eternal life. He gives you eternal life by his Holy Spirit. And we all now as Christians, have the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That is a massive unifying factor. That means the same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in every one of you who is a Christian. That means the same Holy Spirit that lives in you, listen, lives in your favorite author who is a Christian. Your favorite whoever that is a Christian. The same Holy Spirit that lived in um, John the Baptist lives in you. The same Holy Spirit that lived in John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, lives inside you. This is big. So you are united in a mysterious way to all the authors of the New Testament. You're united. We are one body with them. You and John Calvin, same body. You and Vody Bauckham, same body. We're all one. Different parts, but we're all unified. Now listen, this has really important implications for our church, okay? If we have the same spirit and we're part of the same body and you're wilding out and stiff-arming everybody, guess who's the problem? You are. And we, if you're a member, are committed to come after you. If you're not a member, we're committed to the members first. We have to be because we're gonna give an account for the members. I'm talking about Eddie and I as the pastors here. Okay? But we need to stay together, friends, because we can accomplish so much more together than we can fighting with each other and being apart from each other and biting and devouring one another. Let's go to the next unifying truth here. Number three, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, the one hope that belongs to your call. So now we're going to talk about the latter um, of this same conversation with Nicodemus, John 3, 16 to 18. Everyone knows this verse. It's the most famous verse in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, excuse me, should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did not come on a condemnation mission, but he came on a salvation mission. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, what we're looking at here, friends, is one hope that belongs to your call, okay? The call of God can be seen all through the scriptures as the powerful and effective move of the Holy Spirit that awakens you from spiritual life to spiritual death. You are called to him. And from that calling, you receive eternal life. You see it. 
Whoever believes in him, verse 16, should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, our lives are so, so short in comparison to a never-ending amount of time. It's a water bottle compared to the ocean. It's our little planet compared to the billions of planets inside the billions of galaxies. Your life on this earth is a period in a dense 1,000-page novel. Your life is very short, yet your life is also very long. Very long. It never ends. And the hope, friends, that we have is though we die, yet we live. Jesus himself said, anyone who believes in me shall never die. I love it. Doesn't mean you won't physically die. It just means the moment of death, you are alive. (laughs) And freed, freed to sin no more. Now listen, verse 18 clearly says that every person who is not a believer is already condemned. It's not like condemnation's coming for you. You're in that state already. Look at it. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned when? Already. You you need to know that. That it's not like you're going to be condemned someday. No, you're there. And for those of us who are in Christ, the great hope of our calling is we don't have any more condemnation. We've escaped it. If we were able to travel to verse 36 of this same chapter, we would learn that whoever believes... The wrath of God is diverted, but whoever doesn't believe, the wrath of God remains, stays on, which means it's already there in condemnation. Friends, we have great hope ahead of us. We are saved from the wrath to come. That is great hope. There is a judgment day coming, and though that might seem unjust and unfair, listen, it's the only thing that will make justice actually culminate. If every wrong will not be righted, then injustice rules. You realize that? Massive injustices are done every single day, and people get away with it day after day after day after day. Thoughts, motives, and deeds. And yet, the hope is, friends, for you and I who've experienced injustice, no one's getting away with anything. The just judge of the earth will do right. He will right every wrong. And that should give you hope. Should give you hope. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is the hope of our calling. Revelation 21, 22 to 27. John, the same one uh, author that wrote the previous reference. I saw no temple in the city. He's talking about the eternal city in the new heavens, in the new earth. So there's no temple in this new city, the capital city, the new Jerusalem. Why is there no temple? Because the temple was the place that you went to meet with God and be in his presence. Well, there's no temple in this new city because God's presence is everywhere. It's pervasive. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God the Father The Almighty and the Lamb is Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light. So God's inherent glory somehow emanates out that we don't need sun giving us light and the moon reflecting the sun's light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations walk. So the the nations, still separate, still different ethnicities here, still different parts of the globe living, Walk by the glory of this new city. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting picture to, to imagine. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That means the treasures of culture all over the globe are going to be brought out of those distinct and separate cultures into the new Jerusalem, which will be the place of ultimate glory, where all the cultures, all the art, all the, the, the glories of food, all of the architecture, all of the goodness of the new heavens and the new earth will be present in this new city. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. I don't think um, we can take all this literal. I think a lot of it is, is pictures. Okay? They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations 
but nothing unclean. Now, verse 27, I love this verse, okay? And you're going to read it one way, and then I'm going to flip it on you. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The reason this is hope-inducing for me is I do, guess what I do on a regular basis? Detestable and false things. I do them. Do any of you do them? I see you shaking your head. Yeah, you do. Because we can't help but do them. Who will deliver us from this body of death? The things we want to do, we can't do. And things we don't want to do, we keep doing. And such is the state here. But you know what this means? This means I will be so cleansed and transformed that no longer will I be unclean. (laughs) No longer will I ever be able to do what is detestable or false again. And my name as a Christian is written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, that that is hope-inducing, man. That one day, the struggle that I face every day will be no more. And listen, if you're not struggling, you have to ask the question, what is wrong with me? Maybe you've not put yourself in a position to struggle. What I mean by that is, if you're really living the call of God in the New Testament, your life should be a little crazy. Like, you should be taking the chaos of the world into your own experience in such a way where some of that chaos gets into your world. And it should mess you up to a degree where you need God. You need Him. You shouldn't be living such a smooth life that I don't need God. I could do this. My bills are paid. I cook every meal. You know, I go on vacation seven times a week. I pay my car off. Now listen, smooth. Eddie's laughing. Why is that funny, brother? Okay. What? What did I say? Did I say something dumb? Oh, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, unless you're, Bill Ga- unless you're Bill Gates. Yeah, seven times a year, I meant to say. Thank you. Yeah. Listen, and, 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 and I, I welcome any correction from the, from the audience, please. Like, just let me know. Dude, you said something really dumb. Just say it, and I'll try to correct myself. All right. Seven times a year is what I meant, not a, di- not a week. Okay. You, you get the idea, though. And I'm exaggerating for effect here. I'm using hyperbole. But the idea is Christians are called to live in such a way where they're involved in the body, that there are always hurting people in the body, and if you're actually involved in the life of the body, some of their hurt is going to come onto you. It's inevitable. And unless you isolate yourself and just say, it's me and everyone exists to serve me, if you're the one just receiving all the good and the help, that's a problem as a Christian. You need to be going out and serving and loving others. You need to be going out into the brokenness of the world in such a way that you're immersed in it that some of that brokenness comes into your experience. That's what we're called to. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. In light of how Jesus has sacrificed for you, can you not live as a sacrifice for him? Guess what happens to sacrifices, friends? They die. (laughs) They die. Take up your cross and follow me. He who loses his life for my sake shall find it. This is the Christian call, friends. And we live in such a way that would be dumb if we didn't have a future hope. Like, Why would you live like this? If If you only live once, why would you live like this? Well, we know we only live forever. And that's why we live like this, because this life is short, and my eternal reward depends on how I live my everyday now in this little, short breath, steam, as James calls it. Your life is a vapor that appears for a little while and is gone. Friends, let's live in such a way that we produce change in others. Let's sacrifice. Let's get into each other's dirt in a way that affects us. Listen, I'll be the first to admit that I get so frustrated trying to help that I need to repent. I need to repent, and I have to repent because I do ill things. And I could simply remove myself from a lot of situations where I'm just not in my life, I'm done with that. It's too much. 
You could do it too, and I'm sure most of you are living in such a way that it demands a gospel answer. I'm sure you are. And if you're not, let's go. Let's go. This is what we're called to. One hope of our calling. And we are running out of time fast. Let's do the next one. One Lord. Now, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. We only have one Lord. There is no other Lords. This is Romans 10, 9 to 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Four, with the heart that's the core of your being, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Now, we got to stop for just a second there. See, your heart is the core of your being. And God gives you a new heart in the gospel. The Holy Spirit moves on your heart in such a way that it goes from dead to alive. And you then from the heart speak. You confess. From the heart, the mouth speaks. And what's happening here is with the heart, there's a belief, a life that enters into the heart, the core of your being. And that belief is justifying belief. What, what, what does justification mean? The simplest way and the best way I've ever heard, it's like this. It's just as if I'd never sinned, but it's also just as if I'd always obeyed because Jesus gives you his perfect living as a gift, and he takes all of your sin on the cross. It's as if you never sinned, and it's as if you've always obeyed. You're justified. Your slate is wiped clean. There's no condemnation for you. And then because of that heart change, the mouth starts to speak different. You know, we could tell a lot about you from what comes out of your mouth. From the heart, the mouth speaks. From the core of your being, you say what's really you. And so the mouth confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's roughly quoting Isaiah 28, 16. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek... For the same Lord is Lord of all. Ethnicities don't matter. There's only one Lord. There's only one Lord. There is no other options. Bestowing his riches on all, all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so you need to call on the name of the Lord, the only Lord, and be saved. Be saved. Be saved from your sins. Be saved from the wrath to come. Let's move fast now. One faith. So we have one, one Lord. It's Jesus. There's only one Lord. There are no other options. He is the only option. One faith. What is one faith? Well, we could see the one faith here in Jude 1.3. And in, whoops, I, I left Jude out here. I have um, Jude 1.3 in my notes here. So Jude only has one chapter, and verse 3 says this, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I just wanted to write a letter to you encouraging you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend means to fight for it. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there in Jude, we have this faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. Paul in Galatians, when talking about his own story, he said uh, of those who see his life now, he says, those who saw me say he is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. He's now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. So the faith is the gospel but the faith is also the entirety of the Christian worldview as seen through the 66 books of the Bible. And we cannot deviate. Listen, God has revealed himself in a book. And that's how we know solid truth. We must be people of the Bible. We must ground everything we believe in the revelation of God. And if something is contrary to the word of God, we know what has to go. We know what has to go. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Now, this is not faith in general, okay? This is not just trust. This is the faith centered in the scriptures. All right, let's do uh, the next one, baptism. So the one, one baptism here, look, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Do you not know, Romans 6, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this is a spiritual baptism. This happens to you when you become a Christian. You get a new heart, but you also are plunged into Christ. Okay? You're immersed into Jesus such that his life becomes your life and your life he receives, and he receives the penalty for it on the cross. Do you not know that all of us, all of us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, this is spiritual. This is not talking about water here. So when Jesus died, guess who died? You and I. The old you who lived like hell is dead and buried with Jesus. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now we can walk in resurrected life. We can walk in newness of life. We can walk in, walk in life more abundant. We can walk in power that we did not have before. Now, this spiritual reality is pictured in water baptism. I mean, Jesus commanded this for all disciples, not an option. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all I've commanded. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, this is the command on every Christian. If you're a Christian, if you have believed in your heart, confessed Jesus as Lord, thrown yourself upon his mercy, received the new heart, you have the Holy Spirit, you were buried with him, you have been raised, and now it's time to show the world by the outward visible symbol of the spiritual reality that you've received. When, you, when you're standing in the baptism water, we do immersion baptism because we believe the word baptism really means baptism. The Greek word really means to go underwater, to dip. Okay, So when you stand in that baptismal water and you go under the water, it's a picture of you dying with Jesus and being buried with him right here, Romans 6. And then when you come up out of the water, guess what that pictures? You are resurrected new. You are not the same person. That dead person is in the the grave. And you are new. You are now not who you were. That's good news. That's good news. Because the old Chris was a foul, disgusting, shameful Chris. And that Chris is dead and buried, never to be resurrected again. Praise God. And I tell myself that often. And we only have to get baptized once. If you will, it's, it's like the initiation, right? It, it, it's on the front end. We baptize on profession, not after 10 years to see if it was the real thing. Why do you do it like that? Well, because in the book of Acts, they confess Jesus as Lord, and within seconds, boom, they're baptized. Ethiopian eunuch. There's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Let's do it. Boom, baptized. Okay, we baptize upon profession, not upon examining you for 10 years, scrutinizing your life. We've certainly, I have been involved in baptisms of people who have left the faith. They had a profession. It was not real. They were not born again. They are now trying to destroy the faith they once proclaimed, the opposite of Paul. I know them personally. It's sad. And I, I hope that that doesn't happen to any of you. I hope and pray not. But if you've not been baptized and you're a Christian, friends, let's do it. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? One baptism. All right, last, number seven. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the last text that we're going to do, and and we're just going to be done. We're just going to be done. I wanted to see your reaction before I actually attempted it. How about this? We won't do it. There's one, <laughs> there's one, one Father, and He is the Creator, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay? The Father creates, He, he decrees, it comes through the Son by the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved in everything that happens in the world, from creation to the creation of a new creature, The new creation is also going to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But listen, friends, this is beautiful. We all have the same Father. That's what this is saying. What does that mean about us? We're all brothers and sisters. 
Doesn't matter what ethnicity, doesn't matter what subculture, doesn't matter what music you like, it doesn't matter who your favorite podcaster is, doesn't matter who you voted for. None of that stuff matters, friends. What matters is that you have the same father as me. That means we're in the same family. That means we're brothers and sisters. And that is massively unifying. And how sad that we know families, and maybe it's your family, where there's biological brothers and sisters that can't stand each other and actively seek to harm the other. But friends, it should not be in the church. Should not be in the church. We have the same Father. We are brothers and sisters. And guess who the Lord Jesus is now? He's our big brother. We're family. And this is the reality. You are going to spend eternity with your spiritual family and most of your biological family you will not spend eternity with. So who's closer in the long run? And yet, friends, I know because... It's awkward because it's weird because what will we talk about? Yet we go separate ways after Sunday worship gathering and we'll see you again next Sunday. Friends, here's my plea. There are people in this church, even this little, this little gathering right here, that you've never went to coffee with, dinner with, tea with, or beer with. You've never done it. And if they're your brothers and sisters, we just gotta ask the question, why? Like why have you not been to their house? Why have they not been to your house? Why have you not linked up yet? Why do you not know how they became a Christian? Do you even know if they are Christian? Maybe they need you to tell them the gospel. Friends, we need to be more than attenders. Please. Please. Let's be a family. Only God can do this. One God and Father of all. Now that, real quick, that of all means he's the creator. There is no other creators. Satan didn't create anyone. So in the sense of creation, God is the father of all. Now spiritually speaking, there is only one father. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells the unbelievers that they're of their father, the devil. So though the devil doesn't create, he also has a family. And those who aren't in the family of God are in the family of the devil. There's only two options. And like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. That's how it goes. And those who are of Christ and have the capital F father, their lives begin to change and reflect him. That's what happens. And we become different than who we were before. One God, creator, and one father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In him we live and move and have our being. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever.